Well, amen. In an article he wrote on preaching.com, Dr. Leslie Holmes, a professor and Presbyterian pastor, shared the following. He said, in the northern or in, yeah, in the northern European forests near where I grew up, the ermine or stoat or short haired weasel is noted for its snow white winter fur. That little animal will do whatever it deems necessary to protect its pure white coat. For hunters, having learned I'm sorry, fur hunters, having learned how to take advantage of this unusual sense of animal pride, do not set traps to catch them. Instead, they smear the entrance to their rocky crevice homes with grime and dirt, then set their dogs loose to sniff out and chase the little creatures. When the dogs come near, the startled ermine scurries toward its home for protection, And spotting the grime on its doorstep, however, the ermine refuses to cross it and risk getting dirty. Rather than soil that white coat, the ermine allows itself to be captured in an effort to save its purity. And then he says this, for the ermine, purity is of more value than life itself. I mentioned a few weeks ago that our struggle with God acting so decisively and abruptly and severely with Nadab and Abihu was due to a couple of things. One, God's holiness being downgraded. And two, our sin being downplayed. But I think that those two things also have a couple or bring about a couple of other issues as well. One, the, the call for Christians to be holy has been underemphasized. And two, our pursuit of that call has been undermined. We live in a time when holiness and the pursuit of holiness is treated as negotiable, optional, and maybe even unnecessary. And to take the call seriously, well, or or to follow it or to seek holiness with any kind of exuberance is, is viewed as rigid. It's viewed as maybe even fanatical because holiness is no longer valued. It's not something we value. And unfortunately, a a vast number of professing believers now are following a couple of different courses. One, there are those who have decided to take the anti-law route and to live lives that reflect a sin all the more so grace may abound mentality. And others, others have chosen a legalistic route. And they live lives that reflect and and obey all the more so you may attain mentality. And neither of these, of course, is appropriate. And both reflect a low view of the law, which Paul calls holy, righteous, and good. However, there is another response. And that response is reflected in 
our chapters last week in 18 through 20, as well as tonight in chapters 21 and 22, all five of those chapters make it very clear that the call to holiness is not negotiable. It's not optional. It's not unnecessary. And it is to be pursued with exuberance because it is the Lord who sanctifies. It's a call from the Lord. So our outline tonight, as we look at these two chapters, it's found in the, back, the outline is in the back of your bulletin on the last page there. There are three points that we'll look at tonight. The first is the call to holiness is an inclusive call, not an exclusive call Two, the call to holiness is an internal is about internal renewal, not simply external reform. And then finally, that the call to holiness is a call to self-denial, not self-promotion. Self-denial and not self-promotion. But let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin, okay? Father, would you, by your Spirit, allow us to appreciate the richness of your story of redemption, of which you have graciously made us a part We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these words from Leviticus. And we ask that you would help us to understand them. May we leave here appreciating more fully what is presently and forever ours in Christ. And may we be more confident in and may we rest more fully in and trust more deeply in him. Having heard these words. And I pray these things in Christ, the Holy One. Amen and amen. So first, by way of quick review, let's look back to last week. And it was there that we said that the emphasis of the book of Leviticus is has changed. It's different now moving from 18 through the end of the book. And from 18 to 20, we see that there is an expectation that's being placed upon the people of God to reflect the holiness of God, to reflect the one uh, in whose image that they've been created. They were to be different. They were to be set apart and live as those who have been set apart. They had been redeemed. They had been set free. And they they were to live differently than those of their past and, and those of their future. They were not to live the way that others live, but to live in the way that God had called them to live. His love had been set upon them and he had made a way for them to dwell with him and for he to dwell with them. And of course, we say that said that the same was true for us. We also said that some of the laws in the last three chapters that we read were applications that were targeted directly at particular issues or problems facing Israel at that time. And then there were others interwoven within those chapters that were laws that were applications that were targeted more at general issues or social problems that that are faced by Larger groups or or people groups for all times. And so we walked through those chapters and our attention and our, our focus was on the underlying moral principles of those laws. Because it's the underlying moral principles that are carried over and that we see affirmed in the New Testament. And we said that those those moral laws are summarized by Christ In two ways, one loving God and the other loving our neighbor. And so as we come to chapters 21 and 22 tonight, there is another shift, but it's not a a shift in 
in content or it's not a shift away from how the people might live, but it is a shift away from or it's a shift in audience. The shift is from the people or the congregation as a whole to the priests themselves. The instructions and the instructions aren't. As we've been looking at over the last several weeks, even the last few months, it's not so that they might know how to carry out the sacrifices. The laws that are being presented or the obligations that are being placed before them are in regards to just how they live in the day to day. Because the priests were people too. The priests were married. They had families. They worked. They worshipped and were a part of the community at large. And their responsibilities and, and their, their roles were different so that set them apart because their roles were different. Their lives were different. Their responsibilities as priests impacted the day to day. And while they as members of the people of God were called to be holy like everyone else, there was a sense in which they were called to be holier than the congregation. One commentator put it this way. There were degrees of holiness depending on the proximity of an item or person to Yahweh. The degrees of holiness were clearly witnessed in the description of the tent of meeting and the pattern of Old Testament worship. The closer a person or thing was to God, the more holy it became and the holier it must be, lest it be consumed by his holiness. So because the priest ministered on behalf of the people inside of the tent of meeting and because the high priest ministered on behalf of the people within the Holy of Holies, the standard for holiness that was established for the priest was even more strict than the people. And we heard some of those things tonight as as Daniel read for us. The priest could not attend or, or could only attend a family funeral. And they weren't allowed to grieve like those outside of Israel. The high priest couldn't even go to a family funeral. They had to remain in the tabernacle. And they couldn't mourn like the Israelites. Like just the the normal guy. The, The priest couldn't marry a prostitute or anyone who had been divorced. The high priest couldn't even marry a widow. They had to marry a virgin. The priest couldn't be handicapped. They couldn't have any type of deformity either by birth or by injury. They also had to make painstakingly sure that they themselves were ritually clean on a regular basis. Because if they touched anything that someone from the congregation brought to the temple and they themselves were unclean, they would have made that which the Israelite had brought to the temple as unclean and they were going to be cut off. And then, of course, they also had to perform their tasks perfectly and they had to take the time to make sure that every animal was unblemished and that the sacrifices were performed perfectly. So, in other words, they had to be totally committed to the Lord. They had to there was nothing more important than him and their service to him. He expected wholeness and completeness And purity and unfettered devotion. They had been appointed as mediators for 
himself and for the people of God. Of course, as we've mentioned at several points throughout our study that we too are called to be holy. We're called to be holy because the call is for all of us, not just a few of us. The call is for anyone and everyone, young or old, male or female, rich or poor, who looks to Christ in faith for their salvation. Anyone who is a child of his, who's been called to live in a manner worthy of their calling in Christ Jesus. We're all called to love God and to love our neighbor. We're called as a kingdom of priests to to live in light of who we are. As obedient children who have been set free from the bondage of sin and that we might live in righteousness. And yet, while in one sense we're all in the same boat under the same expectations, we also have to be honest and admit there is a higher standard for those who are in leadership within the church. There is a higher standard. Elders have a responsibility To lead in a way that their pursuit of the call of, well, elders have a responsibility to lead in a way, or or really lead the way, in the pursuit of holiness. They're to lead the way in that pursuit, and their failure to do so, due to their position, has a much greater impact on the church as a whole when they fail. Which is why James says, not many of you should become teachers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Speaking as a teaching elder, it's an interesting life to live, really. If I can be transparent, it's a life lived in a constant double bind. Because on the one hand, people desire a pastor who is just like them, who can identify with their day-to-day lives and understands the struggles of sin because they're a sinner too. They want a pastor who, well, they don't want someone out of touch with reality and they, they want just a normal guy. And yet people, on the other hand, they also desire a pastor who upholds the ideal and the standard of holiness And they want him to do so in such a way that his potential failure or the failure of his family is unthinkable. And the expectations are of some are so high that if the if the pastor or elder happens to to stumble and reveal that fleshly side that he too wrestles, that he too wrestles against and sometimes falls to. Disappointment and even disillusionment take hold and and people leave the church, not ever realizing that they're holding another to a perfect standard that no one can reach. But the remedy to that problem is really simple. The remedy to the problem is simple. Rather than you looking at me as the ideal. And rather than me setting myself up as the ideal, or any elder for that matter, and rather than pointing you to me, 
all of us should be looking to Jesus. All of us. All of us are to look to Christ. He is the one to whom you should look. He is the one to whom I should look. He is the one to whom I should be pointing you. Because he is ultimately the one to whom the priesthood and these laws in chapters 21 and 22 point to. Think about this. The high priest had to be holy. Listen to John 8. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am Yahweh. I am God. I am the Holy One. The high priest had to be fully devoted to God. Listen to John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. In John chapter 6, he said he didn't come to do his will, but to do the will of the Father who sent him. He was fully devoted to the Father. The high priest could not be defiled by death. Luke 7 tells us, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bears stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead men sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. The high priest's bride had to be pure. Matt read earlier from Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. And the high priest could only enter into the Lord's presence if he was completely whole. And as we've read over the last several weeks in Hebrews chapter 9, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through greater and more perfect, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with their ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Why should we look to Christ? Why do we look to Christ? Because he is our great high priest. He is our great high priest. He's not just a symbol of holiness. 
He himself is, in fact, holy. He's not defiled by death. He defeated death. He's overcome death and the sting of it through his cross and resurrection. He was not restricted by the sinfulness or the faithlessness of his of his bride. He is the one who is sanctifying his bride and will present her as holy and righteous and blameless before him. And he was and continues to carry out his role at perfectly. Not only is he our perfect and great high priest, he was our perfect and unblemished sacrifice. His body having been given for us, his blood having been shed for us that we might be atoned for, that our, our sins might be washed away, that we might be cleansed, that our debt might be taken away, paid for by him, that his righteousness might be imputed to us, that we might be holy and blameless before him. And so we're able to come into his presence. We're able to come into his presence. We're able to dwell with him now and forevermore. We who are enemies, we've said this, we who are his enemies have been brought near. We've been reconciled to him. And we come into his presence without fear of anxiety, without fear or anxiety. We don't fear judgment because it's been placed upon Christ and it's Christ who is our mediator and our priest. And so we can all pursue the call to holiness without fear, striving forward And then leaning back into Him. Resting. And we all, young and old, pursue that call because it is a call that's inclusive and not exclusive. Well, the call to holiness is also a call to internal renewal and not simply external reform. As we read last week through 18 and 20 and then this week in 21 and 22, we realize these lists of things that we that they were to do is well they they were numerous and specific and yet they were not comprehensive and exhaustive they were wide ranging but they also as we read through we noticed they were all externally focused they were all about our behavior they were all about physical relationships and food and what could be touched and blood and the condition of sin and bodily abnormalities—easy for me to say—abnormalities, right? And discharges, bodily fluids, and how things might be sacrificed, and that, and that's because everything was symbolic. Because all of those things, all of those things pointed to something else. You see, the fulfillment of those things in and of themselves did not provide the righteousness and holiness that the people needed. Fulfilling them is not what made them right. All of these things, all of the rules and regulations in the law all pointed to the reality of God's holiness, the depravity of man and the gap between the two and the need That the people had something outside of themselves, someone outside of themselves needed to bridge that gap between he who was holy and they who were not. So their fulfillment of those things did set them apart from the Egyptians and the Canaanites. 
but it didn't make them whole and complete. That's why four times in chapters 21 and 22 and then once back in chapter 20, the Lord says, I am the Lord who sanctifies. I sanctify them. I sanctify you. The call call to holiness wasn't simply a call to external or moral reform. It was an internal call. It was an internal call to spiritual renewal. It was a call to look to God to do what only he could do on their behalf. And, And how do we know that? Because this is the exact issue that Jesus was facing with the Pharisees. One of them. Right? The Pharisees were clinging to their fulfillment of the Levitical law. For their assurance of their holiness. They, they were resting in their ritual cleanness to define how holy they were. Which is why they would get on to Jesus' disciples for not washing their hands. Before they ate. And it's also why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. I tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The, The righteousness of the Pharisees was nothing more than outward and ceremonial. They were following the rituals, but they were missing the deeper meaning behind the rituals that had been presented. They were they were trusting in their own external righteousness And Jesus said that the righteousness that is needed for salvation is way beyond that which is external. Why? Because it's internal. It's something that only the spirit can do. And that's why he chided them in Matthew chapter 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate. That the outside also may be clean. His, his point is that they needed internal cleansing, not just external cleansing. They had a heart issue. They had a sin problem. And the remedy would have to be an internal work by the Spirit, not an external work of their own. And brothers and sisters, we've got to be honest and admit that we have the tendency to fall into the same trap as the Pharisees. I admitted it with the children, and I know they said I'm the only one, but... I'm not. We fall into the same trap of relying on and looking to and flaunting our own external works. We fall into the trap of of looking at our own effort and diligence and success and setting ourselves apart. But unfortunately, when we rely on and we look to and we flaunt our own selves and our own external work and we focus on our effort and our diligence and our success, we we begin applying the standard that we are fulfilling our standard of works and effort and diligence and success. And we place it upon others and then we begin judging them based upon our standard. And that's not what the Lord is calling us to do when he says be holy. When he's, the call to be holy is a call to rely on and look to and rest in Christ's work for us. And to focus on the Spirit's effort and the Spirit's diligence and the Spirit's success in changing our disposition and our desires within us. In changing our heart that enables us to... To die more and more into sin and live more and more into righteousness. 
Christ has purchased our justification and our sanctification, our righteous deeds and our good works and our holy living are to be a natural outflow of what the Spirit has done within us. And when we don't do the things that we should do, when we're not holy as we've been asked to be holy, and when we choose otherwise, we, we should repent and we should seek forgiveness and receive the forgiveness that is ours in Christ and then set our minds on things above and continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord by His grace and His Spirit. Because our only hope is Christ and His righteousness alone. And that leads us to the last point. The call to holiness is a call to self-denial and not self-promotion. Self-denial, not self-promotion. As I mentioned, under that first point, uh, the priests were set apart as holy. And they would, and, and some would say they, they were set apart as holier, as we read, based on their proximity. Um, the priests were set apart based on their proximity of the Lord. To the Lord and and the closer one was, the holier they had to be. And and so but at the time the law was given, that stricter nature, the stricter requirements were intended to set them apart, but not above. And what I mean is this, that they were intended to set the priests apart as a group. So that they might have a keener and greater awareness and sensitivity to what was holy and common, what was clean and unclean, as well as what defiled and what cleansed. Those stricter requirements were set upon them because their whole purpose was to be a God appointed mediator who served the Lord and the people. Who served the Lord and ministered to the people and taught the people. Their call to holiness was for the benefit, yes, of themselves, but most importantly, for the benefit of the people. Their stricter requirements and judgments were given because, because they came with a, and they came with a greater responsibility, really. They weren't better than anyone else. They were called to be holy so that the people might be holy. And unfortunately, the Pharisees turned this on their ear as well. Or turned it on their ear. They were self-prescribed keepers of the law. Right? And they saw themselves as the ones to whom these laws applied. But in Luke 18, we read that they were not only trusting in their own righteousness, that they were treating others with contempt. In other words, they were prideful and elitist. They were looking down on others as lower class citizens. They were the ones who had the stricter laws. They were the ones who were more holy so they were the ones holier than everyone else. They were more important. They were more prestigious. Their positions alone was showed everyone how holy they truly were. And it's no wonder that 
the more they bought into that, the more stringent they became, right? And so they would stand out. And Graham said, as we, were, as we were leaving, Graham said, you know, the Pharisees would get out and start praying and saying words that they didn't understand. That's, that's what they were doing, Graham. Right? Look at us. Look at how holy we are. Everything that they did screamed, look at us. And of course, Jesus had no patience for that kind of thinking either. Right? He, who again, not merely a symbol of holiness, but he being holy himself, repeatedly said he came to do what? To serve and not to be served. He came to lay his life down for the sake of others. He came not interested in self-promotion, but in self-denial, doing everything that the Father desired for Him to do so that others like you and like me might benefit. Holy for us. And again, if we're honest, we can fall into that trap of seeking to be holy so that others may see how holy we are. We can self-promote, we can seek our own welfare, we can be focused on our own status and we can begin look, looking down at others and we can, be, we can begin parading around and, and showing off all of our piety that does nothing but to serve ourselves and to fan the flame of pride. So we need to be on our guard. We must be on our guard because the call to be holy is to benefit, to be a benefit to others so that others might themselves be holy. Loving and serving our neighbor, putting their needs before our own, seeking what's in their best interest, sacrificing energy, time, and resources for their benefit, doing so humbly and unassumingly. All acts that, those acts would set us apart from the world around us, and they would identify us with the one apart from whom we can do absolutely nothing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you now...